welcome to Second World Problems. Uh, today, uh, as always, I am joined by my associate and uh, co-host, uh, Finn. Hello. Hello, Morgan. How are we doing? I we're mean... doing, well, no, we're not doing good because we're in <laughs> lockdown again. Yep. Uh, but as good as we can be doing. To date the podcast, with this podcast is being recorded during Melbourne's quick seven days circuit breaker. And at the moment, it's still seven. By the time this comes out, we may have realized it actually went longer, but who knows? Or, or shorter, hopefully yeah. shorter. Fingers crossed. Uh, but to, to uh, celebrate, or yeah, this is something where it's like, hey, maybe uh, in this time you could binge watch this show. Yeah, uh, hell yeah. Yeah, so we're doing a show. We uh, are doing a show. I guess I'll... Hand off to you. Yeah, we haven't done a show in a while. So we're doing Shadow and Bone, um, season one, which is on Netflix. Um, I've also read the books, but because only season one is available to watch at the moment, we'll be sticking primarily to the show and season one. So no spoilers. Send no spoilers. Yeah. Um, so we won't be talking about the second and third books, only things that are relevant from the first book. Um, but mainly we're just talking about the show. Um, and this week I couldn't quite decide whether I wanted to be Inej because Knives um, or Zoya because she has a great character arc or Milo the goat. <laughs> so, because <laughs> I love Milo the goat. That's gone um, over my head. I did a crash course, watched one episode and Googled yeah. some spoilers for myself. Well, That's... you're going to, you're going to meet Milo the goat Morgan and you're going to love Milo the goat. Milo the goat is the MVP of the first season. I'm excited. You said Milo the goat and instantly like I watched one episode and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this show. Obviously I'm hooked. But now you've said Milo the goat and I'm like, oh, priority. This has been bumped to the top of the list. Yeah, because there's there's a goat in it. Um, so yeah, those are the three characters I'm sort of tossing up between and I still haven't made a decision. Morgan, who do you want to be? Um, going off uh, the very my first initial impressions, um, I would like to be the uh, leader, uh, leader of the crows, I presume, uh, Kaz Brecker. Oh, you want to be Kaz? I thought you'd want to be Jesper, but then you've only watched one episode. See, I so was, like... I was like tossing. I just feel like, because Jesper's the first one you meet. I feel like from the crows yeah. gang from memory, and I was like, I like him. He seems cool. And then, um, and then Kat, you get introduced to Kaz. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I was tossing to him. I don't know. Kaz has a bit more like mystery and personality. It's like, ooh, he's, he's so young, young, but he's so powerful. Mystery and spark, whereas yeah. Jesper's like fun and flirty. Yeah, but also like, and it has knives. From what I learned, I'm like, I, they're the bad guys. I don't know. This is this is all my stuff from what I've done, my my crash course. I'm like, I like these guys, but I think they might be bad. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you'll sort of find out over the course of possibly this podcast and also <laughs> finishing the TV show. We will. So we start with a bit of background. So Shadow and Bone is the first of Lee Verdugo's Grishaverse series with two following books in the main series, which are um, Siege and Storm and Ruin and Rising. Um, there are two spin-off series. However, as I've already said today, we're only covering the first season of the Netflix TV adaption. So no spoilers, hopefully. Um, I'm, I've been pretty careful about it, but something might slip through. Um, if it is, it'll be a really minor thing because um, I haven't included anything from the second two books, so it will only be first book. I also haven't read the spin-off series, so although like I might speak about the first book at times, I cannot speak to bits of the TV show that feature characters, details, or plots from anything outside the main series. So like the the Crows books, haven't read them. So although I although I know that the plot is going is necessarily different from the books already, I don't actually know what the difference is because I haven't read those books. 
So season one of the show follows most of the plot from the first book, detailing the events that befall Alina Starkov as she works away from cartographer in the army to undiscovered Grisha to Sun Summoner and then to Saint. And the world doesn't have a name. Uh, like I, we're coming across a lot of fantasy worlds that don't have names, but the main setting is Ravka, um, which is where most of the plot and events happen. So what's interesting about the TV show and also the book, but mainly the TV, but mainly we see it in the TV show much better than I think it's realized in the book is that it uses template cultures to map the fantasy world. So Ravka has a Russian aesthetic. I was going to say, I really love like the uh, Eastern Bloc Russian names and like stuff. I'm like, yeah. this is like, like it's not something very common in fantasy, but it kind of had this, has this weird mesh of like fantasy and then like, like cold Soviet era likeness yeah. to it. I was like, this is fresh and interesting. I like it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Ravko is sort of Slavic Russian. Um, Fyodor is Nordic, and Shuhan seems to be Chinese or at least Pan Asian. Novi Zem is not really covered in the book, nor do we see a lot of it in the show. So I can't really speculate on whether or not that has a, a, a like an, a cultural aesthetic equivalent to our world the way that the others do. I probably it does, but I don't know what it is. However, if you look at the map in the book, it's very similar to our world map. If you cut out like most of Europe and Africa and then like half of the other side of Canada and America, it just sort of looks similar. So I just think it's interesting because and, and if you do that, you get Russia and you get uh, Scandinavia and you get China. So it's interesting. I like it. It sounds, just, yeah, it was just immediately different. I'm like, cool. Yeah. And, like, using template cultures isn't super original in fantasy, but um, choosing Russian culture as an influence, influence is less popular. It still happens. A couple, like, like, I think feel like it's got a bit more popular in, like, recent years because I've read a couple that have sort of Russian cultural influences, but it's not, like, a super popular one and not, like, you know, Europe in medieval times. Um, so it's not exactly original, but there has definitely been like less ground trodden in terms of using that as a template. I was also getting like big Durmstrang vibes from the Grisha. I was yep. like, yeah, they're Russian, but they're like Russian magicians. So they're Durmstrang from Harry they're Potter. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but that's true. They do have very similar looks. It's also easier to furnish a world when you have template cultures because you don't have to make up an entirely new vocabulary or worry about what you're going to call this thing in a fantasy world. If like there is there isn't this place or this guy who invented it, you can just like call it the thing. Like you don't have to worry about what to call like what they're wearing if there is actually a word for what they're wearing um, in the culture that you're sort of taking as your template. It makes it a lot easier. It's like you don't have to worry about describing different hairstyles that come from our world. You have to be like, would they still call it this thing if it wasn't for this? Like just chopping your work in half it's very smart yeah because this world is like quite rich in detail but also has like like it has the the richness that comes with an association with russian culture that like people think of when they think like i feel like when we think of russia we think about like we think about like the the monarchy and like all that extravagance that um eventually sort of became the downfall so like I feel like and like stories and details like architecture and clothing like we 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 there's a richness in those that we associate which then adds to what we associate with the world of the story as well we're taking a lot of assumptions with us 
and it, it means that the world is more detailed and vibrant because we have certain assumptions about like Russian culture I feel um I did find when reading the book and in the show but that was mainly because I'd read the book but I mean you'll see it in the show as well I think even if you haven't read the books that it's a bit predictable if you're familiar with fantasy in that the story hits a lot of the same beats as other stories of its sort and doesn't try to subvert audience expectations too often so like you can sort of guess where the story's going a lot of the time. So, like, although I I, I did guess that like whether where the story was going, I guessed its plot points. I still find that better than a shock twist poorly executed. Um, although, like, I was never surprised by the story or what was happening, or um, it wasn't like I didn't find it a super complex read that was still more preferable than, like, an unjustifiable shock. It was still, like, a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. Even if you, like, could track it, it's better than them subverting something badly and being like, well, you've ruined the whole series, season eight of Game of Thrones. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. It it wasn't unjust in any way. Um, And the trappings and dynamics are nice enough that not straying too far from convention builds a stronger story, even if that story is not necessarily, and again, I would like to say this is my opinion and other people might really love this series and that's great. Um, I think it's well written. It's just not like a favorite for me and I don't find it a super complex one. I do think it is a strong story for staying close to convention rather than trying to do too much and do it badly. Um, But that's just my opinion. Which Um, you are allowed to have which I'm allowed to have, so please don't be mad at me. I know people have a lot of strong feelings about their favourite fantasy series. So the main places in season one of the show are Ravka and The Fold, with mentions or brief forays into places like Fjörda, which I, which you don't see a lot of. It does Everything just looks cold, Morgan. Everything looks cold, except in The Fold where it looks dark and sandy. So, yeah, you've got a choice of dark and sandy or cold. Cold. Those are the two you've got. Um, so Ravka is a nation bordered by Fjorda in the north and Shuhan in the south and the Trusi in the west. So it is, And then it's split between east to west by the Shadowfold, also known as the Fold or the Unsea, which is a magic construct of darkness filled with creatures called Volcra. Um, the only reliable way to cross it is with a sand skiff, which is a boat, but it goes on sand. It's cool. It took me longer than I care to admit to realize they weren't on water. They were on sand. Yeah. I think it's cool. Like, I just enjoy boats going on sand instead of water. I just think that's such a fun fantasy-like thing to do. It's very sand. It's very sandbender. Sanders. Yeah, yeah. That's what it makes me think of. The capital in Ravka is Ozolta, where the monarchy lives and which contains the little palace, which is where Grisha live and train once they have presented themselves as Grisha. Karamzin is the small is the name of the small village in South Ravka, which is where Alina Starkov and um, Mal. I'm not going to try to pronounce his real name because some of this Russian stuff is just not going to work for me. I'm going to do my best though. Um, but it's where their orphanage is located and where they grew up. Um, the orphanage at Karamzin was founded by Duke Karamzov. A celebrated war hero who, upon his return from fighting, converted his estate into a home for children orphaned by the war. Fjorda is the northernmost nation bordering Ravka, and it's very mountainous. Fjordans perceive Grisha power as dangerous and witch-like, and they train their Duskela to hunt and kill Grisha. Um, And then this hostility 
um, obviously puts Fyodor into conflict with Ravka, who trained Grisha as soldiers. So there's there's a lot of like, not like, I mean, I suppose it's sort of all-out warfare, but not quite. Um, but there's ongoing conflict at Ravka's borders. So magic is obviously a big thing because that's what Grisha use. That's what makes them dangerous. So magic has two forms in the show and in the book. So um, there's the small science, um, which is the art of manipulating matter at its most basic form. Those who practice the small science are called Grisha. So that's what Grisha do. So for Grisha, all matter in the world can be broken down into the same essential parts. Grisha have the ability to manipulate matter at this fundamental level, giving the appearance of magic to what is actually a precise, del- deliberate science that abides by physical laws, as must everything, anything else in nature. However, I will say that calling it a science is a bit debatable in that um, you can say, you know, it's a science and that it abides by physical laws, but the the book, neither the books or the TV shows really explore that, so you can't really say that it's inherently logical um, <laughs> and therefore inherently reasonable and inherently scientific. It's still more magic than it is science um, because it, so much of it remains unexplained. If you can't explain it, it's magic, not science. Um, and really, if it's science, everyone should be able to do it. So, You've got a good point. So to summon combustible elements from the air, it's not enough to make fire. A spark is still needed to ignite it, so tools can assist Grisha in their manipulation. For example, reflective discs are given to Alina to help her manipulate her affinity for sunlight. So, And like when you see Inferni use fire magic, they still need like a flint to ignite the, the air that they're using as combustion. A guiding principle in Grisha theory is that light calls to like, meaning that some quality in the Grisha gives them an affinity for a certain kind of matter. That quality attracts them to other things sharing that quality, and that's why they can manipulate fire or, or elements, like combustible elements or like whatever makes air that makes wind, you know, stuff like that. So theoretically, all all Grisha can do everything. So I got the impression that like they were like, I, I do fire and I do air. But they they can do all the all them. They just choose to do specialize in one. No, so I mean, if you, I assume what if I mean, I want to get into spoilers tel- territory, but presumably, if you broke something down enough, yes, everything would be connected. But for most Grisha, they can only break it down to a certain point that gives them an affinity for a single element, basically, or a single thing and some like you um genya who genya who's a tailor has a sort of double affinity in which he's not quite a fabricator not quite corporalnik she's sort of both so like you can get grisha that are sort of like dual but like generally they they can only use one there's no avatars no they're actors yeah, more or less their access to the small science only goes so far. Um, the second sort of magic in the, in the world is called Merzost. So the small science is predicated on the notion that matter cannot be created, only manipulated or changed. But Grisha of great power and skill can push the limits of science by attempting Merzost, which is a Ravkin word meaning both abomination and magic. So Merzost is the power of creation, of life over death, it's also known as a corruption of the making at the heart of the world. So it's not, yeah, like that's why Grisha need like 
still need certain like things in order to make their small science work, but Merzos is is actual creation. It's making things from nothing. The power of Merzos and what it grants can be um, like super dangerous, um, and it's likely to produce unexpected or unintended results to a to a like a world changing, devastating degree. So it requires the sacrifice of something essential from the person attempting it. And consequently, consequently, the act of performing Merzos drains vitality from the person. So, like in the show um, and in the books, I, or maybe maybe it's just in the show, but um, when they talk about Merzos, what the character says is magic. Like they say, like the small science or magic feeds Grisha. Merzos feeds on Grisha. So, like one of the principles of the small science is that using it makes you feel like basically gives you vitality. It makes you makes you it clears away your acne it makes you more feel stronger more active it, it makes you more healthy um to use your grisha powers but merzost drains you so that's like the the two different ones yeah it doesn't sound worth it really does it no it doesn't uh, 10 out of 10 would not attempt <laughs> uh so an amplifier increases grisha's grisha power and is uh, they tend to be quite rare um, amplifiers cannot simply be taken they must be earned so for instance slaying a powerful animal can gain a grisha the use of an amplifier made from the animal's remains a rule that is posited um, is that a grisha is limited to one amplifier per grisha so you can't have more than one however morozova who we'll get to more later performed experiments in such a way to successfully create amplifiers that could be used together so he ultimately created three amplifiers to be used by one Grisha Um, however the only one that you actually see in season one is the white stag and that's sort of the one of the main plot points for season one is this hunt for the white stag and it's the first of Morozova's amplifiers the cut is something I'm just going to talk about briefly because it's super cool and I didn't I couldn't quite fit it I couldn't quite work out where to put it so I'm just going to put it in here um, so the cut is an incredibly powerful Grisha move, which literally cuts things in half by coalescing Grisha power into a single strike. And only powerful Grisha can do it because it requires a lot of control. So the Darkling is the first to demonstrate it in the show in saving Alina's life. And Alina also eventually learns it, although I'm not sure when. I'm not sure if the show actually showed her using the cut, but I'm pretty sure she does learn it in the first book. But yeah, it, it, it's so cool when when they do it. Like, yeah, it's just incredibly powerful. Sounds and when they badass, when they show it in the show, like you just see like this guy, like his face just slides in half, and then his Jeez. body just sort of like just like falls into peace. It's so good. It, it looked like something that belonged in Castlevania. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, so I just think that's a really cool feature of Grisha power. So the main character, as we've talked about, is Alina Starkov. In the show, she is of Shu Han descent, which is, I think is really interesting dynamic to add, um, which she wasn't in the books. She is an orphan. Um, her only friend to start with is Mao. She is also a Grisha and a Sum Summoner. However, she did not know she had that power um, until, you know, the start of the, is you know. Is it random? The end of the first... No. Or is it genetic? Well, I think, it, no. It's not genetic. 
So I suppose it's random. With what usually happens is that Grisha examiners go and test children to find out when they're young if they're Grisha, and then they go to the little palace. What happened with Alina is that um, she basically fooled the test in order to stay with Mal. Um, because she didn't want to be separated from him. So she did get tested at some point. Yeah, but she didn't know she was Grisha. She just did it so that way she wouldn't be separated from Mal. Yeah. But it turns out she is Grisha and uh, a legendary form of Grisha that everyone's been waiting for for <laughs> hundreds of years. Just had to wait a little longer. Yeah, so that's fun. Um, there's Mal, who is obviously Alina's best friend. He is a really talented tracker. And that's probably all you really need to know about him. He's also sort of a principal love interest, but like, eh. <laughs> that's basic. Yeah, that's 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 sort of beep. Like that was my least favorite part of the episode. I'm like, I don't. Yeah, your best friends and that you might. I don't care. Let's yeah. get into this world. Yeah, that's not the stuff that matters. Um, it's certainly not my favorite part. I mean, it is. It seems like he is an important character because he. She's the reason. He's the reason she passes the test. Also, he's the reason a big thing happens in the first episode. Like he is like a catalyst for a lot of stuff with her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But also, like the fact that he's a great tracker obviously becomes a big thing um, when it comes to when you're trying to find, you know, Mars over Stag. Like who you're gonna who you're gonna get? Just some some nobody off the street. You're gonna get like the best tracker ever. So that's sort of his thing. There's the Darkling, also known as General Kerrigan in the show, which he's that's not he's never referred to that in the books. But I, I think that's a great name. I think General Kerrigan sounds great. Ben Barnes, he, your boy. It is Ben Barnes, my boy. Didn't show his face in the first episode. Little disappointed. Yeah, just a very handsome man. Um, Prince he's like yeah, yeah, I look at him and I'm like, gosh, like if I was a dude, that's what I want to look like. But you know, we can't have everything in the world. <laughs> um, not everyone can look like Ben Barnes. Anyway, so the Darkling is the general of the Grisha army. He His Grisha power is like the control and manipulation of darkness, hence being called the Darkling. Uh, presumed to be the only one with this power. It's sort of an anomaly among Grisha. Like, Alina is the only sun summoner that um, we see in the series. And, yeah, that's sort of him. He's... Uh, he works for the king, but he has, like, ultimate power over the Grisha contingent. Um, and he wears all black, and it's a great look. He seems, yeah, very ominous. Yeah, he, he's very ominous. Um, he wears a lot of billowing black coats and stuff. and I don't know, it's just a look that I'm into. It's an aesthetic that, you know, usually works. Yeah. And then there's the Crows, who are part of a spin-off series that, uh, have been put into the TV show for the better, I think. I think they're great. Oh, so they're not in the original book? They're in the spin-off, the Crows series, but they're not in the the original trilogy. Oh, that's crazy because I feel like they're going to play a big part in this season. Yeah. For, like I said, for the better, um, I think they're great. But yes, so there's Kaz Brecker, who Morgan decided he wanted to be in this world. So Good Kaz style. Brecker is a gang member and leader of the Crows. He leads Inej and Jasper across... Um, yeah, there might be some spoilers for you, Morgan, <laughs> in, this, in this podcast, but that's that's your fault. Um, leads Inez and Jesper across the Shadowfold in hopes of capturing the leg- legendary Sun Summoner for a big payout. Um, there's Inej Gaffar, who is also a gang member who travels Rav- to Ravka to cap- capture Alina. Though in doing so, she discovers that her beliefs contradict the mission and sort of have to like struggle with 
wanting to let Alina go because of what she represents as the Sun Summoner. Them damn morals. They just get yeah. in the way. Also, she has lots of knives, and I really appreciate that about her. She seemed pretty badass. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Um, and then there's Jesper, um, who is the last gang member, and I've written a witting star of the whole show, except that was before I remembered that Milo the Goat was my star <laughs> of the whole show. But Jesper's like a close second, I think. He's so good. So he's a gunslinger um, and, you know, a, a, a good comedic relief, a really fun character. Um, and, yeah, magnetic on screen. So um, that's the Crows. And, yeah, and they're sort of part in the story. They're trying to capture Alina for a lot of money. And that's how they sort of get wound into the plot. There's a couple of important secondary characters, or at least I think they're important. Um, so there's Bagra, who is a teacher at the Little Palace, who specializes in teaching Grishas to use and control their powers. And spoilers for you, Morgan, she's also the Darkling's mother and shares his power. Mm. Um, there's Jenya, who is a tailor at the Little Palace. Um, I just think she's a great character. Um, and having read the book, she has a great character arc. Um, but in the first season, she's mostly there to make Alina look nice and and sort of be loyal to the Darkling. That's sort of what her role is. And then there's Zoya, again, another great character arc. Zoya is a – I can't remember. She's one of the wind people. She's a bit of a bitch to start with because, of course, she is. You need that character who's going to conf- uh, be the, the conflict with the – with the main female character because women can never get along in these sorts of things. Is she the one that Mal stole the grapes from that flirted with him? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Cool. That's Zoya. And yeah, that's, that's sort of her thing is to be like pet, like pettily in conflict with Alina and then to eventually sort of towards the end, switch sides and, and actually like Alina and, and, you know, be willing to, um, except that Alina is probably the answer to a lot of their problems. Taylor's old as time. Yeah. And then there's David, who is great in the books um, and is played by Luke Pasqualino in the show. Um, He's from Musket- D'Artagnan, isn't he? He's D'Artagnan. I saw Porthos was also in the show, but I missed yeah. D'Artagnan. Yeah. Um, well, he's not in it a lot. He's uh, he's in a few of the later episodes, but David is actually Jenya's love interest and he's a fabricator and he's basically um, a genius fabricator. So he makes a lot of um, crazy designs that um, have a lot of interesting uses, but he's not really in the first season a lot. I just put him in because he, he is a really great character in the books um, and I really want to see more from him in the show. But mainly what you see in the show is him being like, Jenya trying to like flirt with him and him like not being able to handle it because he's really shy um, and then him making stuff for like Alina and the Darkling and um, at one point he he gets attacked by Jesper and he throws a book at him and it's funny yeah classic so um, there's also a small plot with uh, two two new characters as far as I know which is Zena Nina Zenik and a Juskella, whose name I can't remember, but it's quite a minor plot, but it is really enjoyable to watch, so they can get a bit of a shout-out too. The only other really, who, who seems like he's going to be an important character, but we haven't quite gone to the part where he's super important yet, um, and he wasn't in the books, so I have no idea where his plot is going to go, but there's also um, General Zlatan, who is a First Army general from West Ravka. He supports West West Ravkin independence and seeks to lead an insurrection against the king. So, like, obviously a plot point that was added for extra tension between West Ravka, um, which is the on the opposite side of the Shadowfold 
um, next to the actual sea and then East Ravka, which is where the king and the little palace and everything is. And so it was, it seemed like, it seems like that's going to go somewhere at some point, but it hasn't quite gone anywhere yet. <laughs> There's also a couple of creatures that I'm going to mention. So we've already, I've already mentioned the Volcra, but they are one of the creatures that live in the shadow, that live in the shadow fold and that feast on human flesh and they tend to move in small flocks. They are disgusting to look at. They have long, dirty claws, leathery wings, and rows of razor-sharp teeth. When wounded, they bleed black. They are also blind from living in the fold for so long, but are said to be able to smell human blood from miles from miles away. And they're not very nice to look at. Morgan, you've probably seen seen them in the first episode. You yeah. confirm they're ugly. Yeah, they're <laughs> ugly. ugly. They just pull you away scarily. Yeah, and then eat you. Delicious. Morgan, this is going to be another spoiler for you because, again, you didn't watch the whole show, so that's your fault. But um, there's the – and I'm going to do my best with this one. I did practice it, but saying it in one go might be a bit of a struggle. But the um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche – yeah, I really tried. Um, Nietzsche Voya. Nietzsche Voya? Nietzsche Voya. Nietzsche Voya. I can't say it fast, that's for sure. But they're shadow creatures created by the Darkling. The Darkling used Merzost, because of course he did, the power of creation, um, which, as I've said, even among Grisha is considered an abomination, so really good job on that one, um, and created the creatures to do his bidding. They are first glimpsed in the last scene of season one of the show. So their full like implications has not been realised yet, but they don't look nice. And I doubt they're going to be nice. And, yeah, good on the Darkling for for doing that. I mean, he's called the Darkling. What did you expect? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, every time, like, the people in this world, you're like, but, okay, but he's called the Darkling. Like, what? <laughs> you're all like, and you all trust him? I was like, but his name is the Darkling. <laughs> like, it's not, yeah, it's not exactly like a, a nice name. I wouldn't. Yeah. If someone introduces him to the Darkling, I'm like, oh, your friend material. It's like, I'm going to I'm gonna keep my eye on you. <laughs> Yeah, so we've talked a bit about the army structures, but we'll get a bit more into it. So the first army is also known as the King's Army, and it's the principal land warfare force of Ravka along with the second army. Um, so originally Mal as a tracker and Alina as a cartographer are, past, are part of the first army because they're just normies. So the first army is composed of non-Grisha Ravkins, um, and there's obviously a natural rivalry between the first and second armies because people don't trust Grisha power and then Grisha think that ordinary people suck um, and normies aren't as important as them. Um, and then this friction then obviously spreads, like sort of exemplifies wider conflict between Grisha and normal people just in general because there's a, a whole history of like Grisha just trying to live and normal people being afraid of them and killing them and then Grisha retaliating and making it worse. So that's that's those dynamics. Um, in the first army, both men and women are enlisted and this is mainly due to Ravka being in a constant state of war with its neighbours um, and then obviously the Shadowfall dividing the country. So they really need all the bodies they can get. However, they don't recruit people outside of Ravka. So you have to be a native Ravkin, but it doesn't matter what your gender is. They just need another body. Bodies are bodies. And you can you can uh, you can uh, pick up a gun or you can pick up a map. You have that's your choices. Well, there's I'm sure there's other contingents other than soldier, tracker, and map maker, but they're the only ones that we see. The second army is obviously then made up entirely of Grisha with the Darkling as the leader. 
as a uniform, every soldier in the Second Army wears a kefta in the color of their order, which fulfills several functions, such as distinction from like between the different orders of Grisha and also being a symbol of being a Grisha and also a member of the Second Army. So it's a lot of just like we get a fancy uniform because we're special. The soldiers of the First Army look at the members of the Second Army with mistrust and distance, obviously, because Grisha, like, because they're special, think of themselves as special. they got a superiority complex. They sure do. So, uh, yeah, and because of that, they tend to think the First Army as weak, less gifted, inferior, and less valuable. So (laughs) really good dynamics there between two armies that really should be working together. Yeah, I think there needs to be a bit more trust and open communication. Well, that's not going to happen, though. The Second Army recruits, like, so Grisha do not only come from Ravka. They can come from all over this particular world, um, especially, like, you know, places like Fjorda where they kill Grisha. Their Grisha are probably quite happy to go <laughs> live in the little palace and fight for Ravka. So we'll talk about the orders of Grisha because we've already mentioned that they have special uniforms according to what order they're from. So corporeal key, where crimson kefta. Their power focuses on the human body. They are the highest ranking soldiers of the Second Army and also um, are generally the most feared. So their order is divided into two types, heart renders and healers. The reason that they're feared is because of heart renders who can literally stop your heart and fuck you up. Whereas healers, who doesn't need a healer? Healers are great. Someone can heal you? Hell yeah. They Someone can, can stop your heart? Let's you apart. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, there's the ethereal key, um, who wear blue kefta. So the order is divided into three types. Squallers, who control the pressure and movement of the air. Inferni, who can generate and control fire using a flint. And tide makers, who can summon and control water. Usually they work and fight in pairs. So you might have like two different, like you might have a squaller and an inferni or something who work together. Um, Sun summoners and darkness summoners, so Alina and the Darkling, are also part of the ethereal key order, even though they obviously stand out because they're different because they're not like everyone else, but they're still part of that order. That's where their powers come from. Then there's the material key or fabricators who wear purple kefta. They are the least respected order due to having no use in a fight, but that's a bit reductive. Um, nevertheless, their products such as Grisha steel, armor, and blasting powers are very important for the Second Army. The order is divided into two types. So there's the alchemy, who, who work with chemicals, um, and then the jurast, who tend to work with materials and metals. So like David, I'm pretty sure, is a jurast, not an um, alchemy, but also I'm not sure because he hasn't been in the show much, and I don't really remember the books that well. And then we, we get to Genyo, who is a tailor, which is a Grisha talent that falls between fabric, fabricator and corporeal key. So she's something between like being able to manipulate material, but also be able to manipulate the body. So she's between both. So she can like get rid of your eye baggies, Morgan, and change your hair color cool. and do your makeup for you without having to use any actual makeup. So that's sort of her powers. Hers is sort of like manipulation of the body, but not in like, I mean, she might be able to use it in like a heart render way, but the only way it's really seen is that she uses it to do cosmetic stuff. But also, I I think that's a great power. That's I think cool. being a tailor would be awesome. Um, I'd love to be able to not have to go to the hairdresser and pay a lot of money to change my hair color. It would be really useful for yeah. me personally. <laughs> 
so the fold was created. It was It's not a natural construct, Morgan. If you didn't know that. Uh, this next point, I already spoiled this next point for myself. Yeah, yeah. So the story that both the book and the show tell is that the Black Heretic, originally posited as the Darkling's ancestor, but quickly revealed and also easily guessed that um, they are in fact the same person. <laughs> he's called the Darkling. <laughs> yeah, right. But, I mean, he's got like General Kerrigan, the Darkling, and the Black Heretic are all three great names. Yeah. So he's really winning at the great name game. Um, so he created the fold, trying to re- recreate Morozova's experiments with Merzos. See, he can't help messing around with that shit. And instead, he created this huge rift of darkness and turned everyone inside it into monstrous creatures. Um, however, the show gives a little more de- detail to this than the main trilogy um, in one of the later episodes. So many centuries ago, the Darkling returned home to his Grisha partner, whose name was Luda, um, who was a healer. Not long after his return, the home was surrounded by the king's soldiers, demanding that the Darkling turn himself over because the king, he'd basically been using his power and now the king was afraid of him um, because, you know, they just that's how it works. The Darkling did as instructed and gave himself up peace, peacefully. However, the king's man's page, the way these things go, the king's man had no intentions of actually bringing him in. We're going to kill him. Um, Luda was captured and killed, and then enraged by her death, the Darkling used the cut and killed all of the men who were there um, in one awesome blow. Um, the Darkling then took Luda's body to a sanctuary where Grisha were gathering a weight so that way they couldn't be persecuted, hoping that you know someone there would be able to heal her, but he was too late because, of course, he was. Um, the Darkling then informed his mother of the soldiers that were coming, and Bagra blamed the Darkling for making the king afraid. So then in turn, he sought to make the Grisha fear him instead of being afraid of Grisha. She urged him to flee west um, and then wait for the king to die and then return under a new identity and make peace with the next king as a different person. Um, However, of course, the Darkling refused and he decided he would make a new army uh, using Merzost um, following Morozova's, like, experiments with it but it went really badly and he his attempt to turn the king's men into his own army created the fold and in the process and the army probably became volcra and then possibly the the nicho nichevoya but that's sort of unconfirmed but i imagine that that's where that's going because he wanted an army and then he gets all these crazy creatures that obey his will um at the end of the season so that's probably where that's coming from but yeah he created the fold because he's He's a silly person experimenting with things he doesn't not, not he don't necessarily understand. a bad guy. Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say he's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, his 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 attentions may seem fine, but like, were they really like ugh, debatable? I, I like, yeah. I'm not going to defend him. He made his choices. I feel like if you're a Grisha, you're like. Yeah, well, these, I'm pretty safe. Yeah, I mean, if you're a Grisha, you're like, please stop persecuting me and killing me. I'd really like to live. I'm a person. But also, if you're one of the people who was in the fold and was then turned into a Volcro, you're probably yeah, like, no, fuck like you, Darkling. <laughs> How dare you? I never did anything to you, but now you've ruined my life. And I am a black what creature. side you fall on. Yeah. So I'm not going to defend him. He made his choices whatever those choices happen to be. But Merzost is obviously something that you probably shouldn't be messing with because it can fuck you up and it can fuck everyone else up too. So we've talked, we've mentioned Morozova, but we're going to get a bit more into his story now. So his name is Ilya 
Morozova, and he's also known as Saint Ilya in Chains. So he's a real person in the series, but his story has since turned into legend. So um, in the history of the world, he was once a really powerful Grisha, but then over time he has just become sort of a legend. And in the show, the Apparat, who is a character we haven't talked about and I'm not going to because he's not that important in the first series, um, he's basically just like a, an, a spiritual advisor to the king and he's creepy. That's his role. Um, but the Apparat tells Alina the story of the Bonesmith, which is one of Morozova's titles, which is awesome. Some cool names. It is. One. Um, and it's a title which is mentioned in the later books for Morozova, but they've included it in the first season because it's such a cool name, obviously. Um, so he's one of the first Grisha in recorded history. According to the Apparat, he knew Grisha would always be persecuted, so he sought to magnify their power. He allegedly made mythical am- animals from his own bones brimming with powers. Grisha learned that killing one of these um, animals and then melding a piece onto the Grisha's body would amplify their abilities. With the right binding, the increase in power could be astonishing. Only the Grisha who takes the creature's life can take its power, though. Um, Morozova's stag is one of these, and the one that the first book and the first season is focusing on. So it's an ancient, magical, and magnificent white stag that only appears at twilight. According to Bagra, there, it, the stag is elusive and part of the older science, the making at the heart of the world, created for Morozova's experiments with Merzost. And it, it, it's a pretty cool design, the stag. I really like the way they've shown it in the TV show. The other creatures, which I'm, I'm okay, I feel like it's okay to mention because, like, telling you what they are doesn't really change anything. And also they talk about it. Like, they show pictures of it and talk about it in this conversation that the apparat has with Alina. But the other creatures are the sea whip, which is a sea serpent or sea dragon sort of creature, and the firebird. But no spoilers, so I won't mention anything else about those. But yeah, so he created he he created these amplifiers using Merzost, um, and it's those sort of experiments that the Darkling is trying to recreate. But it goes so so incredibly wrong. The Firebird, however, is actually a character in Slavic folklore, which I found out. Um, so the Firebird in in folklore burns with flames so bright that it lights up its surroundings, and a single feather from the bird will stay alight with the same magic. Firebirds bring luck, but also doom. They are hunted and coveted, but they always bring more trouble in their wake than anyone had anticipated, usually in the form of, like, a quest. So a lot of the stories are, like, prince, whatever, and the quest for this, the quest of the seven apples or whatever. Its feathers shine silver and gold, and its eyes sparkle like crystals. The firebird is a nocturnal bird, as at night the bird illuminates the land as it flies over. It is said that a feather from its tail can light up a dark room, the firebird eats golden apples. When the firebirds sing, it is said that pearls will fall from its beak. The firebird was also able to he- heal the sick and cure the blind by its chance. Um, and it has like a couple of different stories in which it folk like in which it is involved in in like Slavic folklore. But like that's sort of the gist of what it is. So that was interesting. That's something I didn't know before. Um, so that's another sort of Slavic influence in in the series. Alina also like Morozova, who is saint Ilya in chains alina through the through the fact that she is a sun sun summoner also sort of becomes a like sanctified pretty quickly so like because her powers have been sort of foretold but not necessarily believed in like the sun summoners are things of legend so by being a sun summoner alina also becomes a thing of legend within her time of actually being alive 
So the belief is founded on the fact that her power is the only thing that can destroy the fold. So that's sort of fair because the fold is really inconvenient and it seems like it would really fuck up your whole thing. Um, so it's fair that when the the mythical power that appears that can finally destroy it, you'd be like, yeah, that person's must be pretty special. Yeah, can you hurry up and do the thing you're supposed to do? Yeah, can you do that thing? Um, so the apparat first demonstrates this idea of her being a saint or like becoming a saint by giving her a book on the lives of the saints, which may have other plot purposes, which it does in the book. But it also represents how people see her, that she's already in the process of becoming a saint to the people who've been waiting for her <laughs> and really wanted to destroy the fold. Another character who sort of shows this uh, this devotion is Inej, um, who reinforces this idea of faith and worship of the Sun Summoner and people's belief that Alina is a living saint. And by taking Morozova's stag as an amplifier, even with the Darklings interference, so, I mean, Morgan, you'll, you'll get there, but like I'm not going <laughs> to go into deep on that, but um, she does get Morozova's stag as an amplifier. Um, there's a lot of implication that goes back to the books that she is following in Morozova's footsteps, and then this is made more clear by the fact that the TV show has already revealed that Morozova made three amplifiers to be used together. So she goes and gets the amplifiers and then gets rid of the fold? I'm just, that seems like narratively speaking. You go on your <laughs> quest. A lot of sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. There is also an undercurrent in the show until the last part of the episode when, um, like, it's mostly an undercurrent. Like, you don't really get a lot of this, this stuff to do with St. Alina. It's just sort of um, sprinkled in until you get to the last part of the last episode when Zoya says to Alina in open in open acknowledgement of her sainthood saints become martyrs before they get to be heroes so stay alive so that's like an open acknowledgement of like what she's becoming to the people that meet her or just hear about her and um, that she's becoming this figure of worship and hope and belief so that's interesting so i thought because of that um, we talk a bit about saints in our world because there's a lot of fun stuff going on there. So um, in, re in religious belief, a saint is a person who is recognized as having exceptional, an exceptional degree of holiness, likeness, or closeness to God. However, the term saint depends on the context and denomination. In certain faith traditions, all, all of the faithful de deceased in heaven are considered to be saints, but some are considered more worthy or, uh, worthy of greater honor or emulation um, official ecclesiastical recognition and consequently a public cult of veneration is conferred on some saints through the process of canonization or glorification. So while the English word saint originated in Christianity, historians of religion now use the, use the word in a more general way to, to refer to a state of special holiness that religions attribute to certain people. So it refers to more than just Christian tradition. It can refer to more than just Christian traditions now, although that's where the term originated. Um, depending on their religion, saints are recognised either by official ecclesiastical declaration or by popular vote. So those sort of recognised by popular veneration as opposed to like official recognised veneration are known as folk saints. So folk saints are dead people uh, or other spiritually powerful entities um, venerated as saints but not officially canonized. Since they are saints of the folk or the populace, they are also called popular saints. Um, like officially recognized saints, folk saints are considered intercessors with God, but many are also understood to act directly in the lives of their devotees. So one that uh, one folk saint 
um, example is one known as Santa Muerte. She's a Mexican folk saint. She's also known as the skinny one, the white girl, the black girl, lady of shadows, bone lady, the pretty girl, the godmother, or the most holy death. Got enough names? Wow. She's got a lot of titles. Um, so she is a, a a personification of death and a saint of dispos- dispossessed peoples. Um, but the place that she's popular um, is Me- Mexico. She is associated with those living precarious lives and are engaged in dangerous undertakings. So she, like I said, she's a personification of death and she's associated with healing, protection and safe delivery to the afterlife by her devotees. Her followers pray with rosaries, go on pilgrimages and place offerings like apples, cigars and candles on her altars. She's supposedly non-judgmental in nature and has the ability to grant wishes in return for pledges or offerings. Santa Morte generally appears as a skeletal female figure clad in a long robe and holding one or more objects, usually a scythe or a, and a globe. She she can, she was also originally like a male figure, but now she's female, which I think is interesting. Um, and yeah, most pictures of her are just uh, like it's just like a you know those skeletons that they used to have like in anatomy class. Yeah. Sort of like that, and then wearing like a, a long, colorful robe. Nice. So I I just think she's super interesting. Um, there's Escravia Anastasia. So she was a female slave of African descent who lived in Brazil sometime during the 19th century. One of the most widely known beliefs of her origins is that Anastasia was actually of royal blood. There are many who believe that she belonged to an African royal family before being brought to Brazil and enslaved. The second most popular belief is that though she was clearly of African descent, she also had Brazilian roots. Her mother was reportedly of royal African blood and became pregnant with her when she was raped by her white slave owner. To cover his indiscretions, he then sold Anastasia's mother to another slave master during the first half of the 19th century. But her actual origins are unknown. After being sold as um, as a slave, Anastasia's mother is to, believed to have given birth to her on March 5, though the exact year is unknown. Um, as soon as she was born, there was something clearly very different about Escravia. So, although she had dark skin, she also had bright blue eyes, and she is believed to be one of the first slaves born in the New World with blue eyes. According to her legend, Anastasia grew up to be incredibly beautiful with everyone on the plant- plantation stunned to see um, a pretty colored girl with blue eyes. An act of jealousy, the white women asked the owner's son to make her wear a heavy iron collar and a muzzle on her face, rendering her unable to speak. She stoically endured the slave mask for the rest of her life and treated everyone with a calm demeanor, kindness and love. The unimaginable pain from the mask would later turn out to be her iconic symbol of martyrdom. So a lot of um, her paintings and stuff have her with the mask on. There are many variations of the reasons for her inhumane treatment, all of which mention Anastasia as being very cruelly treated and raped by her owner. The stories vary from the white women's sheer jealousy of her beauty, um, aiding the escape of other slaves, stealing sugar, or simply resisting her master's attempts to seduce her. After many years of suffering and cruelty, she died of tetanus caused by the iron collar. It is believed that before she died, she cured her master's son of a serious illness and forgave them her, um, the harsh treatment that they had given her throughout her life. The owner then posthumously um, renounced her slave status and she was buried in a slave cemetery in Rio. Excravia Anastasia is remembered as a symbol of compassion and forgiveness. Nurses, prisoners, and the ill pray to her and today she has a place of worship in Baselobos in Rio. Then there's Maximon, who is also known as San, San Simon or San Simon. 
Um, and he represents light and dark. He is considered a trickster, both a womanizer and a protector of virtuous couples. According to legend, the village fishermen traveled frequently for trade and enlisted Maximon to protect the virtue of the wives they left behind. Um, but this backfired. Instead, Maximon is said to have disguised himself as a loved one so he could have sex with them indiscriminately. A real, real fun guy. Maximon's effigy resides in a different family's home every year. His wooden body is dressed in a typical male suit of the region and placed on a straw mat. Those seeking miracles, good health and love make offerings at his shrine in exchange for his favour. Moonshine, hand-rolled cigarettes and money are his vices of choice. His attendants spend their days smoking and drinking by his side and is considered the highest honour to host him. He's brought out during Holy Week and paraded through the streets before being placed in a different home for the following year. He doesn't seem particularly saintly. Well, they're folk saints, so they're not, um, it's not necessarily closeness to God that's associated with folk saints. It's um, but like doing good things, right? Like he... Well, not, not even that. It's about the, the, like, it's about the cult status. So it's about like what their worshippers believe, I guess. It's not necessarily about doing good it's about your legend, I guess. It's it's different than it is for, like, canonized saints where you have to be holy. You don't have to be holy to be a, a folk saint. Um, you just have to mean something to the people who worship you. So another one is Maria Lyonza. So according to legend, although there's different versions, as there always is, she was an Indigenous princess, daughter of an Indigenous chief of her region, now the state of Yorkwai, I think, Yarraquai. Yeah. The shaman of the village had predicted um, before she was born that if a girl was born with strange watery green eyes, she would have to be sacrificed and offered to the master of the waters, the great anaconda, because if not, it would lead to the ruin and extinction, extinction of her tribe. However, her father was unable to sacrifice her, so he hid her in a mountain cave with 22 warriors to watch over and stop her from leaving. She was for, also forbidden from looking at her image reflected in water. I'm not sure why. Um, but one day her guards were mysteriously put to sleep and the beautiful young girl left the cave and walked to a lagoon where she looked into the water and saw her reflection for the first time. Captivated by her own image, she was unable to move, but her presence awakened the master of the waters, the great anaconda, who emerged from the depths, fell in love with the girl and drew closer to take her away. When she resisted its advances, the anaconda swallowed the girl, but immediately he began to swell up, forcing the water out of the lagoon, flooding the village and drowning the tribe. Finally, the anaconda, anaconda burst and Maria Lyonza was set free, becoming the owner of the lagoon, the rivers and the waters, the protector of, of the fish and later of all plants and animals. She is also referred to as Lorena, the queen, by some of her followers. The Sorte Mountain, officially named Sarah Maria, Maria Lyonza Natural Monument, is the centre of her worship and a sacred place where the main altar to, the, to Queen Maria Lyonza is located. So she's she's got a fun story, although she's more um, a nature spirit than a lot of the other folk saints we've got. St. Wilgefortis is the fun one, Morgan, you might enjoy this, although it's not like, the legend isn't, it's unfortunately not true, but it's a great story. <laughs> Love a good story. Wilgefortis was a young Christian noblewoman, the daughter of a pagan king. Um, her father had arranged a marriage for her to another pagan, reluctant to enter into marriage because of the, um, she'd taken a vow of chastity. She prayed to God to make her repulsive to her future husband. Miraculously, when she woke up, she discovered she'd grown a beard. The new beard that she had grown overnight had exactly the effect that she wanted, and um, her engagement was broken, and her husband was disgusted. 
her father was less than pleased with um, his daughter making this prayer and then growing a beard. He became enraged and ultimately had her crucified. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like a very nice reaction to your daughter growing a beard. If your daughter grows a beard, don't crucify her. No, that seems like an overreaction. This legend is connected to a story where a destitute fiddler played for her crucified body um, or a statue of her in different versions, and she gave him one of her golden boots. The fiddler was sentenced to death for, for theft of her boot, but was granted his request to play for her a second time. He did so, and in the presence of an audience, she kicked off her other boot, therefore proving his innocence. The images of Wilgefortis often show her on a crucifix with one shoe off and a fiddler playing at her feet. Nice. However, it is now assumed that her name is a corruption of Hilgevarts or Holy Face, and is to be and is related to the Volto Santana of Luca, which is an early wooden effigy depicting Christ as a man wearing a long regal tunic, which was misinterpreted as a dress. So um, she's actually probably just a, a mistaken effigy of of actual Jesus <laughs> instead of this saint with a beard. But it's a great story. And, of course, the most well-known folk saint that everyone knows is Santa Claus, Morgan. Santa Claus. So he's he's also a folk saint. So, well, yeah, there's a lot of stories. It's really e- easy to just Google Santa Claus and learn about, about St. Nicholas, which he evolved from. So I didn't include him, but he's a he's a fun folk saint. He was uh, made in a laboratory by Coca-Cola, wasn't he? To no, help, not to originally. To help them sell their I mean, that's, he became, <laughs> he became a... Uh, a corporate sellout, but that wasn't how he started. He was originally a saint. (laughs) He sure did. So then, of course, there's various Christian patron saints. So patron saints are chosen as special protectors or guardians over areas of life. These areas can include occupations, illnesses, churches, countries, causes, basically anything that is important to us. I would say it doesn't even have to be important to us. It just has to exist. And we'll slap a patron saint on it. So the earliest records show that people and churches were named after apostles and martyrs as early as the 4th century. So I've just picked out some fun patron saints that I was interested in. I just went through a list and sort of picked them out and was like, this is interesting. <laughs> and I, if you don't look, Morgan, if you don't look at the document, I'll tell you the saint and then you can guess what they're the patron saint of. Okay. I saw the first one. It's bees. Yeah. So St. Ambrose is the patron saint of beekeepers. So it is believed by many that when Ambrose was just an infant, a swarm of bees landed on his face and left behind a drop of honey. To his father, that was a sign that Ambrose would become someone great with a wonderful sense for speaking. So that's St. Ambrose. So next we have Julian the Hospitaller. What do you think he's the patron saint of? Patron saint of hospitals? Of nurses? Of doctors? Not even. (laughs) Not even close. So he's the patron saint of boatmen, carnival workers, childless people, circus workers, clowns, ferrymen, fiddlers, fiddle players, hospitalers, hotel keepers, hunters, innkeepers, jugglers, knights, murderers, pilgrims, shepherds, obtaining lodging while traveling, and travelers. Just love the idea of the patron saint of carnies. Yeah, that's basically what he is. (laughs) He... Allegedly, Julian slew his noble parents in a case of mistaken identity. He believed his wife was with another man and struck them both. His wife returned home from church soon after. In penance, Julian Julian and his wife went to Rome. Returning after receiving absolution, Julian built an inn and a hospital for the poor. He even put a leper into his own bed. That leper was allegedly an angel. Um, that's the story of how he became a saint and that he put a leper who was an angel in his, up in his own bed. 
There's St. Erasmus or Elmer. Do you know what St. Elmer is? Um, I'm, fam- I'm familiar with the movie, so I'm going to say f- the patron saint of fire because of St. Elmo's fire. Okay. No. Uh, I will tell you about, about that. Um, so he's actually the patron saint of sailors, colic in children, intestinal, intestinal aim- ailments and diseases, cramps and the pain of women in labor, as well as cattle pests. So his story is he once fled to Mount Lebanon during a time of persecution and lived a life of solitude there for some time, being fed by a raven. After the emperor discovered his whereabouts, he was tortured and thrown in prison. Legend claims that an angel released him and he he departed for a different place, eventually suffering a martyr's death and was one of the 14 holy helpers. Legend records that when a blue light appears at mastheads before and after a storm, the seam, the like sailors, took it as a sign of Erasmus's protection. This is known as St. Elmo's fire. So it's mm-hmm. actually like a um, one of those like light mirages that you get um, at sea sometimes, but the sailors thought, thought, thought that there was St. Elmo looking after them. So That's nice. He has also invoked against stomach cramps and colic, this came about because at one time he had hot iron hooks stuck into his intestines by his persecution by his persecutors under Emperor Diocletian, and somehow he miraculously didn't die, um, and was very I assume very stoic when when these wounds were inflicted on him, and wow. that's why um, he is the saint for stomach cramps. Makes and stuff sense. Like that. Still don't know why they named a character on Sesame Street after him, but uh... yeah, don't know about that either. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's just because Elmo is a great name. <laughs> Elmo love. There's Gertrude of Neville, of Neville. So she is the patron saint of not having mice and also cats. Of not so having she, them. Not having mice. So she's against mice. She's so yeah. She's anti mice. Anti anti mice. Yeah. She's also a patroness of travelers and gardeners. So according to her legend, she was a mystic and gifted with visions, although none that had to do with mice. So I'm not sure how the mice came into it. I don't know. Maybe she just didn't like them. This is a fun one, and I've included a picture for you. There's Catherine of Bologna. Can you guess what she's the patron saint of? Bolognese pasta? (laughs) No. So she's the patron saint of artists, liberal arts. Oh, actually, I think I have heard this before. Bologna, whatever that word is. No, don't look at that yet, Morgan. That's for later. Okay. We're getting to the picture. <laughs> um, and also against, like, sexual temptation, which is interesting because, like, artists are not known for being particularly good at not indulging in yeah. sexual temptation. Yeah, that's very true. So according to her legend, she was the member of an aristocratic family and the daughter of a diplomat to the Marquis of Ferrara. Catherine received a wonderful education in reading, writing, singing, and drawing while being raised at the court of the Duke of Ferrara. Catherine excelled in painting, Latin, and the viola. She was buried without a coffin, and her body was exhumed 18 days later because of many cures attributed to her at a graveside, and the sweet saint coming from her grave. Her body was discovered incorrupt and remains so today, which means that it hasn't decayed. Catherine is dressed in her religious habit, seated upright on a golden throne behind glass in the chapel of the poor Clares in Bologna. Her skin has since blackened due to exposure from oil lamps and soot. You can now open the horrifying picture I've included for you, Morgan, <laughs> um, and look at what she looks like now. So enjoy. Everyone else can probably just Google it. It's not a nice picture. I don't enjoy it. crazy that she's, um, they just kept her. 
Yeah, they just yeah, she's just in a glass cage. Oof. Looking crazy. She she's definitely looked better. <laughs> yeah. Um yes. It's not it's not necessarily pretty, but I suppose she is dead, so like I I mean, she's looking good for dead. <laughs> All right. Um so next we have Anthony of Padua. What do you think he's the um Patron Saint of Padua, uh, something to do with Romeo and Juliet. Is that Padua, Romeo and Juliet? No, that's Verona. What's Padua? Why do I know Padua? Oh, I don't know. Probably from something like a Knight's Tale. Yeah, something he's like the patron saint of a Knight's Tale. Mm, he's actually the patron saint of lost items. Oh. So some people might think that Saint Jude is actually the patron saint of lost items, but Saint Jude is the patron saint of desperate causes, desperate situations, and lost causes. So if you've lost your keys, you don't want to be praying to St. Jude. You want to be praying to Anthony of Padua. Yeah, St. Jude's like, I can't help. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and then there's Apollonia. Apollonia. Yep. Um, do you know what she's the patron saint of? Can you uh, guess? Women. Uh, no, she's the patron saint of dental disease. Oh. Um, and she's often invoked by those with toothaches. Make it cheaper. Yeah. Exactly. Ancient art depicts her with a golden tooth at the end of her necklace. Also in art, she's holding, she's seen holding pincers with a tooth in it. So she's her the story, tooth fairy. <laughs> her story is that she had her all her teeth knocked out after being hit in the face by a Christian persecutor under the reign, reign of Emperor Philip. After she was threatened with fire, unless she renounced her faith, she jumped into the flames voluntarily. Nice. Uh, and then the next one we have is Saint Drogo. Can you guess what he's the patron saint of? Probably not. Patron saint of uh, dying at the end of season one. <laughs> be great if he was, but no, he's the patron saint of shepherds, coffee, and the ugly. Oh, I like him because I like <laughs> coffee. I'm also ugly, so this <laughs> oh, is my don't, guy. Don't say that, Morgan. That's <laughs> so upsetting. So his legend is that he was a Flemish noble orphaned at birth who became a hen- hermit. Um, also called Drune instead of Drogo. He became a peninitial pilgrim visiting shrines and then became a shepherd at Seborg, France. Stricken with an illness that made him physically repulsive, Drogo built a hut at Seborg and stayed there as a hermit for 40 years. Although Drogo is now regarded as the patron saint of coffee, he actually isn't. He, he had nothing to do with coffee. It's just like an anachronistic like, appellation that they've given him. St. Drogo's coffee does have a nice ring to it, though. It does. It does. Yeah, but he's mainly just the patron saint of ugly people and shepherds. Often, you'd be surprised how often the Venn diagram <laughs> of shepherds and ugly people. He's like... cornered that. He's cornered <laughs> that particular market. <laughs> no offense to any shepherds listening. I mean, yeah. Her- I mean, I appreciate that he lived as a hermit for 40 years. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm ugly, but I could go for that lifestyle. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I'd be willing to become ugly to have to go for that lifestyle, though. I think you can just go into it, no matter how you look. Yeah, but, you know, it'd be nice to have someone watching over me. Probably wouldn't be St. Drogo, though. So our last patron saint is one that I've had to read a lot about during my current studies, which is St. Francis of Assisi. So he, can you guess what he's the patron? I'm going to, so I'm, we, we're, we're Catholic educated through and through. Yeah, we sure are. Uh, and I'm going to let a lot of, uh, a lot of my teachers down now. Cause I, the name, definitely I'm aware of Francis of Assisi. 
Um, patron saint of though, definitely that that information I have let slip. So let's let's have a guess at. Um, he didn't. Well, run... so please remember that I said that I've been reading a lot about him in my studies, which might give you a clue because you do have some idea of what I'm studying. Some idea. It's a very broad. Though. A vague, a vague idea. It might um, help a little bit. Uh, of uh, of literature, of books, of reading, learning. That's a good guess, but no, he's not. So he's the patron saint of animals, merchants, and ecology. So he's an environmental saint. So much has been written about his love of nature, but his relationship was more like the way that he had a relationship with nature was more than just like enjoying nature. He felt that nature and all of God's creations were part of his brotherhood. So the sparrow was as much his brother as the Pope and all things were equal. All animals, all people um, were equal to each other as opposed to above each other in, in like a chain. Um, he saw ev- everything, every living thing as being equal. So in one famous story, Francis preached to hundreds of birds about being thankful to God for their wonderful clothes, for their independence and for God's care. The story tells us that the birds stood still as he walked among them, only flying off when he said they could leave. Um, another famous story involves a wolf that had been eating human beings Francis intervened when the town wanted to kill the wolf and talked the wolf into never killing again. The wolf became a pet of the townspeople who made sure he always had plenty to eat. Sounds like he just trained animals and then performed, did performance art with them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, either way, it would probably be a great spectacle, but I I enjoy him. Um, I think he... He's an interesting patron saint to have. Um, but it really just shows that we will give someone a sainthood for anything. We're like, oh, we need someone for dental disease. Here, you have it. <laughs> Here's your challenge, listeners. We want to know who you're – we want submissions for the patron saint of podcasting. Actually, uh, yeah. That's, let actually, us know. I think we've already got one. Really? Um, Technically, when they so like when you look through like a list of Christian patron saints, a lot of the like new like the contemporary stuff we have is just applied to someone a patron saint who already exists in that area. So we probably get I think Gabriel the Archangel because he's the patron saint of like any form of communication. Apparently, Saint George Precker is the unofficial patron saint of podcasts. Don't know, mm. don't know who that is. Don't know who that is. The one I saw was Gabriel the Archangel because he's the one who gave Mary the message that she was going to be Jesus's mum, and therefore he's basically the patron saint of any sort of communication um, and stuff. That's very broad. Yeah. So he gets a lot of stuff. But that sort of brings us to philosophy and worldview, which we're actually going to do this time, even though we haven't done it in a while. But it's not going to take very long. I feel like the main philosophy that I have taken away from this series is that I could just say don't trust a man, which is funny, but that's not, I don't think that's fair to say, but don't trust a man who says he's the only one who will understand you or that you're the only one who understands him and or tries to separate you from your friends and support network and or kills an animal and tries to gift you its remains to wear. Just all of that. Don't trust a man who does that shit. Bad vibes. Also, if he's called the Darkling, like, what do yeah, you do? Yeah, don't, don't trust a man called the Darkling. So let's start with don't trust a man who calls himself the Darkling and then 
add on to that, also don't trust a man who does any of the list that we've just mentioned. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, is he called the Darkling? Does he, tr- does he do this, this, and this? Keep <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. The other thing that I've, I've, well, I already knew this, but it just, the show just proves it, is that we love a group of criminals with different skill sets and found family dynamics trying to, trying to heist stuff. This, I, I, I've never seen it put into words so well, but like, yeah, that, that point, very important, big point for me. Yeah, we just love it. We can't get enough of it. And the final thing is that Shadow and Bone, it's a pretty typical fantasy, but it has really good stylings. Um, and it's because it's Netflix, they've obviously put a reasonable amount of money into it. So it's not silly and it looks really good. Um, and I just want more fantasy that looks really good and is enjoyable to watch. So hopefully we get more stuff. And it doesn't have to be done by Netflix, although like I would prefer Netflix over like Disney because Disney Disney is evil, so is Amazon. So like Netflix is like better than that. But like if we like even like if we got some like independent fantasies that were a bit like new but also looked good for once, that'd be nice. Yeah, Stan, get on it. Stan has some good stuff, um, but it tends to do a lot more historical shows. But I appreciate that about Stan. So I have some recommendations. A lot of recommendations this No, week. I've doubled them up. So that oh. way, if you want to put them in the show notes, you can ah. without all my actual rambles, which I've written below. Okie dokie. So basically, Shadow and Bone, Siege and Storm, Ruin and Rising, the books, I would recommend them if you have an afternoon and a half free and want an easy fantasy read. Like that's why I'd recommend them. But I wouldn't necessarily say that their content is super complex, but like it's a fun read. Um, even if it is like slightly predictable, but I, I, I won't like naysay them. They're reasonable books. We've already mentioned it on the show, but Uprooted has a similar Slavic sort of aesthetic and template. So that's something if you, if you really enjoy the sort of Russian quality of Shadow and Bone, then Uprooted is a good book to give a go. Other easy reads that are sort of in the same vein as this series are Girls of Paper and Fire, which has an Asian aesthetic, and then uh, The Good Luck Girls, which has an American Western aesthetic. So they have different, obviously different cultural templates that they're using, but they're similar sort of styled novels, like similar sort of content, similar easiness of reading. Um, So they're pretty good. Obviously The Witcher um, on Netflix has similar stylings because it's also a fantasy that they're adapting um, and obviously putting a lot of money into. So, like, if you're enjoying the way Shadow and Bone looks, you'll also enjoy the way which The Witcher looks. I'm currently watching the new season of Castlevania, and I put it in there because it's also fantasy. And I think if you're looking for a TV show to watch and you've watched Shadow and Bone and The Witcher, but you haven't watched Castlevania, then you might want to give it a go, although it is much more R-rated than either The Witcher or Shadow and Bone. Also animated. Animated. So but, a little different. But still really good. And just some, these the last two are on an unrelated note in that um, a show called Word of Honor has just come to Netflix Australia. And on my guest episode of Dealer's Choice, that was one of the shows that I was watching at that time. And also Heaven Officials Blessing is also on Netflix Australia too now. And that was one of the the shows I briefly mentioned in our Untamed episode. So since those are now on Netflix Australia, I highly recommend that you go watch them because they're really good. Um, and because they were, they were mentioned in like previous episodes on the network, I thought I'd bring them up and add them to my recommendations for this this month. 
So yeah, that's everything. Yeah, cool. Thank you for listening, Morgan. It was a big episode. Yeah, it was uh, good though, because uh, I, having only one watched one episode, I, I had many questions and I didn't have the time to watch. And I'm one of the people like I, if I'm watching something, I usually have a Wikipedia page about the world open. Yeah, because you're I'm the learning. worst. Um, and I often you spoil, spoil stuff for myself, all the time. uh, but you never, it's not in context. So you're not, you know, you still get to experience it. Um, but yeah, so I enjoyed learning more about this world and now I'm pumped to go watch it. I would definitely say if you haven't watched it, go check it out. If you have watched it now, you can go back and rewatch it with a lot more of this in mind and maybe notice some more things. That's always yeah. fun. Love a rewatch. Only eight episodes. Yeah. Not long at all. Um, I'm excited for when you finish watching it and I can ask you again whether you still want to be Kaz or whether you've changed to wanting to be Jesper. <laughs> we'll see. I think I've decided at the end of this episode that um, if I was going to be anyone in this, I would in fact be Milo the Goat. All right. Uh, well, uh, I can't wait to meet Milo the Goat and I'm sure the audience is also dying to meet Milo the Goat. But uh, thank you for uh, conducting the research and uh, bringing this to uh, this episode of uh, Second World Problems and we'll do it all again uh, next episode. Yeah. We sure absolutely will. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you uh, want to submit like a, a proper like a uh, uh, patron saint a of suggestion. podcasting suggestion, uh, you know, send it to uh, spikeatrap at podcast.com or just, you know, message us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, go give our Instagram a follow. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. See you later. Bye. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.